Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. This is It's Who You Know, and I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest today is Rabbi Josh Weinberg, who is the president of ARTSA, the Association of Reform Zionists of America. Josh previously served as the director of the Israel Program for the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and as a faculty member of Nifty EIE High School in Israel, teaching Jewish history. Originally from Chicago, Josh has taught and lectured widely throughout Israel, the U.S., and Europe. You can see his full bio on our website, but we'll hear a little bit from him as well. I have asked him to come on the program today to explore the topic of Israel and the role that it plays in the life of modern American Jewish professionals and our organizations, but mostly because he works down the hall for me and I already knew him. So I thought he was the perfect person to talk to me about these issues that can be very divisive, but also quite amazing. So thank you so much for agreeing to participate in this project, Josh. Hi, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. So launch into how you got into this role. Well, I'm honored to be a part of the podcast and to be one of the featured guests. And I kind of grew into this role. I'll say for me, Israel was always a question of when, not if. I'll start with my formative experience, and that was spending a semester in high school on the Nifty EIE High School and Israel program, now called Heller High, URJ Heller High. I went when I was in high school and spent a semester, and that was, that was the life-changing experience, I would say. Full out trying to learn as much Hebrew as I could. I just took in the whole story that was modern Israel, and I said, this was it. And over the years, I spent much time going back and forth a semester here, a semester there. I spent three semesters during college, and I went back right after college. And I was really torn for a long time. I was spending you know, half the time my friends and family, and everyone lived here in the States. I knew that I wanted to be there. And so lots of, <laughs> lots of people actually talk about getting their calling. Mine came in the form of a phone call, which was convenient. Yeah. I would say. And it was Baruch Krauss, who was the principal of the EIE school at the time, called me and invited me to come and be a teacher. And that was my dream job. I was working in Chicago at the Israeli consulate doing uh, PR. It was 2003 in the height of the Second Intifada. I just wanted to be there. I spent a lot of my time sitting in an office talking about Israel. I could actually be there. And so I folded up life very quickly and came on Aliyah. That was one of the best decisions of my life. When I talk to high school kids about it, I used to say I wanted to be in the game instead of watching from the bench. I Absolutely. can see how that can be offensive to some, but... Oh, we'll get into it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt that this was the moment where Jewish history was unfolding before my eyes. And I wanted to be there and I wanted to help people who were like me, just younger, have that experience as well. So I began teaching and that led me to you know, continue my studies at the Hebrew University in Jewish education. I did a year in the Army and the IDF spokespersons unit, and I came back to the EIE, and I realized that I needed to continue, and I wanted to move up in the Jewish world, and I liked the learning. And the fact that everyone was telling me I should go to rabbinical school wasn't good enough a reason to then not go. Right. I wound up applying and going to the Israeli rabbinic program of the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. It was a fascinating time because, for one, I was in a minority having grown up reform movement. And two, most of the Israelis in the program, I would say over 90%, had some experience abroad, whether they were shlichim or whether they were just visiting in other countries and got exposed to a different kind of Judaism. And we're saying, why can't we have that here? We're desperate for that. 
I think Israelis are hungry and thirsty for changing the conversation, for providing alternatives, for expanding the horizon. Too many Israelis go abroad to India and Thailand and the Far East after the army and say, wow, we discovered this thing called spirituality. It's too bad we don't have that in Judaism. And I would say the other thing that impressed me about the program, in addition to the faculty, was the desire to use the rabbinate to affect and to change society. Most of my cohort and my colleagues now are also there to provide meaning in life and you know, life cycle events and to be there for people at the moments where they most need guidance and to celebrate with people, but also to say, we want to change what it means to be Jewish in the Jewish state. And we realized that Israelis are coming to this sort of collective conclusion that just because we have a Jewish state doesn't mean that we have a Jewish community. And so we're trying to provide alternatives. And it's uh, and it's, you felt you know, that a lot at HUC during your rabbinic. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. It was a very diverse experience. And just my class alone, we had someone who grew up in a staunchly secular kibbutz who had a PhD from JTS. And we had someone who grew up uh, Yemenite in an Orthodox community who was an architect and came to wow. it through there and turned politician. And we had people from two students who grew up in Argentina. It was very exciting. And during HUC, I taught on a couple of different programs. I taught a program called Kivunim, which is a gap year program. And then I worked with the Reconstructionist rabbinical students during their year program, which was phenomenal. I enjoyed it very much. And we recreated the program a bit while I was there. And we were not looking to leave Israel. And I was finishing school and I saw that Artsa was looking for a new president or a new lead professional. You know, my wife and I said, okay, we don't want to live in New York necessarily, <laughs> but let's try it. It could be an adventure. And next thing I knew, we were coming here. And I basically came to the conclusion that as much as Israel and Israelis need reform and, and liberal Judaism, that reform Judaism desperately needs Israel as well. And so that's my hope is I spend half the time trying to build and help, help grow the reform movement in Israel. And the other half trying to bring Israel here to the States and to North America. And how long have you been in that role? So I'm coming up on four years. September will be four years. And I feel like on the one hand, I've been here for a while. On the other hand, I'm just getting started. And there's a lot to do. I want you to tell me a little bit about the work of Artsa. But first, I'm very interested in your title. Are you (laughs) essentially the executive director? Like, What is this president's title? It changed in about 2011 or 12. I'm not 100% clear on it. It's definitely the parallel to the executive director but position. You have, but you have a board chair. of. That's right, exactly. Your- the lead lay person is our chair, and they changed the title from executive director to president. We are an affiliate of the Union for Reform Judaism, mm-hmm. but they wanted it to seem like the union where Rick Jacobs is the president of the union. That's my sense. I didn't argue so- with them. Right. So cultural. Um, so looking at the culture around you and figuring out how you fit into that. That's great. You could say that. Yeah, yeah you could say I that. could. <laughs> um, it's just very interesting to me because it's not something you see really that frequently. Um, no, although I think in the Jewish world, we're seeing new and different titles. I love the president and CEO as a title. I'm just like, okay. yes. <laughs> yes. Sometimes I think we go a little bit overboard and take our titles too seriously. Really, one of the best lessons I received in rabbinical school was from one of the people I consider my rabbis, Michael Marmer, who said, take your jobs seriously, but not yourselves. That's a lesson that stays with me, and I appreciate that very much, and wish that some others would follow suit as well. 
Great. So let's talk a little bit about the work of Artsai. I saw just kind of using the website. You've got a great blog. You have awesome infographics about Israel, which were fantastic. Rabbinic mm-hmm. Council, online education resources. It looks like a teen incubator program. Is that a new program? That's a new program that we're starting. It's going to be the second year this year. That's a program designed for high school students coming back from an Israel experience, either a summer or a semester. And my sense is that when they return after this life-changing experience, no one is talking to them. Who's making sure that they remain involved and stay connected both to Judaism, to Israel, and to the movement? So we created a program with the Center for Israel Education and NIFTI, of course, called the Teaching Israel Program. It's an online course over 10 weeks where we take the knowledge that they've gained in Israel and help them become Israel educators with Mm -hmm. the hope of then connecting with them with congregations when they go into college and they're able to be practitioners or be educators. That's awesome. Is this your doing? Yeah, with collaboration. I've been thinking about it for a long time and I found a great partner in the CIE and the Center for Israel Education. Together, we're hoping to launch the second year this fall. That's fantastic. It, it so, looks very uh, awesome. Tell, tell all your friends. You know? <laughs> all my uh, friends, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Go ahead and tell me about your work specifically in this role, about the organization in general. Give me your, sure. your pitch. The stuff that people don't hear about necessarily is that we were founded essentially to play on the scene of world Zionist politics. Now, when I mention that in cocktail parties and circles <laughs> here in the States, people kind of give me that look like, what are you talking about? And we don't know each other well enough for you to have just used the Z word on me, which, <laughs> which, which happens sometimes. We're working to reclaim Zionism, actually, for the good guys. And everyone can decide who the good guys are. But to try to get back to the roots of Zionism, which was really a movement Of course, the national aspirations of the Jewish people to create a homeland in their ancestral home, but also to create an exemplary society and to create Mm -hmm. a just society. And it's important to me to understand that tikkun olam is a Zionist notion and that those two should be linked very closely. And as Zionists and as Jews, we care about how we care for the poor and we should be judged on how we care for those who don't have a voice and who are powerless in our society. And I don't think that's highlighted enough. So let me just say a word about what Zionist politics is. I can give you a 30-second crash course. In 1897, Theodor Herzl started something called the World Zionist Organization, and he convened a congress, which was the World Zionist Congress. We're now marking the 120th anniversary of that. And this was supposed to be the parliament of the Jewish people, where they came together to really focus on the Jewish problem at the time, how we can create a sovereign entity, preferably in Palestine and the land of Israel, but not necessarily. And there was a whole argument about that. Later on, they created in 1901 an organization that would purchase land in Israel, and that was called the Jewish National Fund. People are familiar with it because they plant trees, which is actually a small part of what the JNF or Kakao does. And then about 20 years after that, they created something called the Jewish Agency for Israel, which is going to be the quasi or para-government of the Jewish community established under the British mandate in Palestine at the time. And David Ben-Gurion became the head of the Jewish Agency for Israel. And then when the state was established in 1948, this is the short story, by the way. Yeah, that's um, right. And when the state was established in 1948, he said, okay, we can fold up all of these organizations, the WZO, Kakao, or the JNF, and the Jewish Agency for Israel. And the Diaspora Jewish Community said, you can't really do that, and you don't want to do that. 
And the reason they said that was twofold. One was because the organized Jewish community from around the world was supplying Israel with about 40% of its budget in those early days, weeks, and months. Right. Which is just sort of mind-boggling to think about. It's an astronomical number for a country to depend on 40% of its budget from philanthropic funds. In addition, there was just you know a stream of new immigrants coming in of Olim Chadashim, and the Jewish Agency was the organization that dealt with that, both the Aliyah, the immigration, and the Klita, the absorption. The diaspora community said, we want a piece, we want a voice here in this new Jewish state. Mm-hmm. And to maintain the institution of a Congress, this parliament of the Jewish people, where we could all come together and have representation from Israel and from the diaspora is very, very important. So that Congress still goes on. And we, as Art says, the membership Zionist organization, we represent the reform movement at that Congress. We ran elections two years ago and went to the World Zionist Congress in 2015. We had the largest delegation from North America. And what we do there is pass important resolutions, talk about budgets and funding, and are able to place people in key positions in those national institutions in the same WZO, Kakao, and the Jewish Agency. We also forge a political coalition with two Israeli political parties. So we, as the reform movement, are in a coalition with labor and merits. So that helps solidify our agenda and helps us uh, advocate for our values. Does your website need to be updated or did I just not dig far enough? It's in there. It's in there. I I can show. I I might not dig far enough because that's very interesting. I mean, to know that bit of your work. Yeah. Big part of your work, like working and I'm assuming these delegates. Yeah, it is. So the delegates came from the United States. We brought 64 delegates from around the reform movement, both young and younger. The rule has to be that one in every four has to be under 35 years old. This happens every five years. So during the year of an election, that is pretty all-encompassing in terms of my work. In the meantime, we made a good presence within the national institutions and we're in lots of meetings in Israel around them and talk about how we can increase our influence and increase the support that they give us for the movement in Israel. And together with the conservative movement, where we're often partnering, and we use this platform, I'll give you an example, exactly a month ago, whenever this is going to be aired, when the government announced the decision to freeze the deal to implement the Kotel and to announce right. the highly problematic conversion bill. So many of our leaders were there at the Jewish Agency Board of Governors meetings and together with the help of many federations from the United States, decided they were going to cancel the dinner with the Prime Minister of Israel in protest mm-hmm. over these. That is a massive, massive deal. You don't often hear these sort of establishment organizations like the Federation or JFNA and the Jewish Agency openly being critical of the prime minister or right. of the government or of the state of Israel. And this changed. And it's something that we're all very, very concerned about, especially when we see a deepening rift between Israel and the diaspora or certain people in Israel and certain communities in the diaspora, I should be specific. And so we're working to mend those things and we're working to help Israel understand that these things are very, very important to us, as they are very important to many, many Israelis. It's not just about how this plays out in the diaspora, but it has to be about how Israel equalizes both its Jewish and democratic character. So that's kind of a great segue to my more pressing question. So for you and for many people, right, you have this experience where you go to Israel and you feel so connected and 
feels so much a part of you and you want to be there and you, you know, there's something intrinsic there, right? You know, you're devoting your life to this work and you have people who go to Israel and think it's a great place, excited for it to exist, but really have no interest in back here in the States really being involved in any way. And I'm sure there are people who go and don't like it, right? My question is really around the disengagement piece, the Mm -hmm. middle ground piece, Mm -hmm. the why should I care? And within the framework of being a Jewish professional, right? You work in the Jewish community, got lay leaders on all side of you. I will go into that category where I just don't feel all that connected to it. You don't have to apologize. This is the question that we're all asking. I even put it up on my wall in front of me, almost like the concept of a shiviti. Or in the Psalms, we say, Shiviti Adonai that I place God before me always. So I sort of place this question before me all the time. Why should anyone care? There's a couple of different responses, depending on really who asks the question. All right, so remember the Pesach Seder, when you have four different questions, but you also have four different children asking different questions, and the answer has to vary, depending on who's asking. The first thing I'll say is that I think Israel's intrinsic in Jewish identity and to who we are as a Jew. Our sources tell us, it's actually from the Kabbalistic literature that is later quoted by, by Heschel, that to be Jewish is to have three sacred relationships, and that is God, Torah, and Israel. So my hope is that we approach Israel the same way we approach Torah and the same way we approach God. We can each argue about the place in our lives that these different aspects catch or take as part of our identity. And we can argue that you and I may have a difference on matters of theology, and we may differ on how we observe certain mitzvot. But at the end of the day, we both know that we're committed to studying Torah and we're committed to struggling with this for our entire life. And my hope is that Israel, both the people, the land, and the state of Israel has that role in our life. Now, I also think that we should be able to say, okay, well, so what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? Is this just tzedakah that I give because I feel bad? I mean, tzedakah both literally in terms of am I donating resources and both figuratively as is it a one-way street? Am I giving of myself, whether that's time, energy, thought, money, and am I getting anything in return? That leads me into mentioning a more unknown philosopher by the name of Shimon Ravidovich. Ravidovich died in the 1950s, where he was the head of the Jewish Studies Department of Brandeis University. And he grew up, of course, in Europe, and he fled just before the Shoah. And he had an ongoing dialogue and correspondence with many Israeli leaders, including in the early years, Ahad Am, and then Ben-Gurion and Weizmann, and, and many others. And he developed a concept of, rather than looking at Israel as if you can picture a bicycle wheel in your mind with a center and spokes going out to the various communities, he talked about it as an ellipse. There was not one center focus, but many different Jewish communities around the world, and each has something to offer one another. So I think we can get a lot out of Israeli culture and Israeli society, and I think the proof there is this small project called Birthright Israel. You may be familiar with it. Small, um, but Small. <laughs> You know, it's only sent about a half a million Jews to Israel in the past 17, 18 years. But Birthright is not an explicit Israel program. It's a Jewish identity program that uses Israel as a tool Mm -hmm. to show you a different kind of way to be Jewish. And that different kind of way to be Jewish has to do with peoplehood, 
the concept of Jewish public culture, which is essentially the core of my own Zionism. It's what drew right. me to Israel in the first place. It had little to do with the conflict and little to do with politics. It, politics, <laughs> yeah. I guess it was very much cultural. In fact, my job is to work in the institutions that were developed and created by Theodor Herzl, but I'm really a chassid or, or a disciple of his ideological rival, Echad Am. And so I wanted this Jewish culture mm-hmm. where the Hebrew language has created something new and we live by the Jewish calendar and the ATM wishes you Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> all, these, all, these, you know, all these sort of cliche and superficial things that actually can be much more nuanced and deeply meaningful. And that's a little bit about what we can get from Israel in addition to much, much more. And when I think about, okay, so what does Israel have to learn from the diaspora? I think quite a bit. I'd like to move on beyond the paradigm that the diaspora, specifically North America, is the ATM for Israel, that we're just there to look for support in every organization that is the American friends of whatever Israeli institution. We're quite friendly sometimes. Yes, and some say not friendly enough, you know, and it depends if you could just, just a little bit more. And of course, so many diaspora have been so incredibly generous and supportive of Israeli institutions. But I think that we need to look at how the organized Jewish community is set up and structured. Because if you think about all the different institutions, and I think about all the different people that you've uh, interviewed on your podcast representing the myriad of institutions, or probably just scratching the surface of the Jewish community, is that we've been able to create all that in a privatized economy. Mm -hmm. And that Judaism or religion is not supported by the state in the United States like it is in Israel. And so there's no expectation of doing that. So if your rabbi wants to get a salary, well, everyone pools their money together. They call that dues. And they pay their professional staff and they pay for the building and they pay for programs. And they're able to build incredible, you know, we in the reform movement have close to 900 synagogues. Some of them are struggling, but a great many of them are thriving. I've been to you know, over 100 synagogues in my time so far just to visit and to speak and to teach. I'm constantly amazed and impressed um, by the creativity and by the new people that are coming in all the time and young families and you know, new professionals and programs that are developed. And that's all done from out of the goodness of people's hearts, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so when Israelis come to visit, they, you know, they say, wow. Imagine if we could create that. And that notion of self-supporting and self-sustainable institutions in Israel is still in its infancy. And my hope is that we can develop partnerships to get them started. And you know, we work in the reform movement in a situation where the movement supports many of the congregations, which is different in America. In America, the congregations help support the movement. And so we'd like to move on. And there are different countries that have different structures and arrangements for how the government supports religious institutions that could be more applicable to Israel than the model in the United States, for instance. But it's all part of the conversation. It all has to be part of this two-way, mutually beneficial relationship between Israel and the diaspora. Now, there are other theories that many in America, you know, many Jews in the United States are turned off because of the political situation there. Right. I got to tell you, I understand that both from the notion of the political situation with regards to the Arab-Israeli conflict. We just marked 50 years since the Six-Day War, which many, many in the community see as 50 years of occupation. There are many who don't, and many who have been celebrating it 
as the unification of the city of Jerusalem. I'm one who does both. I both rejoice and weep for the, the situation. There's, of course, the Six-Day War was a great miracle, but it also led us into a situation that is very, very difficult, to put it mildly. So from that aspect, I understand people's frustration. We talk about it a great deal. The situation for non-Orthodox Jews who want to have equal practice and equal space and equal rights in Israel. I hear a lot of calls from some of my Orthodox friends and colleagues and partners in the institutions that we sit in calling for unity, that we should all be unifying together. And sometimes I say, you know, do you mean unity or do you mean conformity? Right. Do you mean that I should be just like you? I say, oh, no, no, we should be unified. And I said, you know what? Before we can be unified, let's have rights. Mm-hmm. And let's make sure you re- recognize me as a legitimate form of practice and a legitimate you know, expression of Judaism. And you recognize me officially by the government. That's essentially what the whole Kotel deal was all about. The Kotel is a symbol, but the issue is how can we be recognized officially by the government as a legitimate religious expression and a religious stream in Israel. And we're not here to replace the Orthodox. We're here to live alongside and be harmonious and complementary. I totally get it from that point of view that people are frustrated. And my answer is that the more we turn away and the more that we shy away and the more that we you know, throw up our arms in frustration, the more we are going to lose that battle. So my answer is to say, okay, don't throw up your arms, roll up your sleeves. Let's get involved and let's start working. Go visit more, learn Hebrew, and be a part of this, the greatest project in modern Jewish history, and that is creating our own state. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Ryan Offman and his new SAT math workbook. Ryan is a high school senior who created a new tool to help others study the right material to understand the SAT math exam. He is now looking to partner with Jewish organizations to distribute the workbook to those who are unable to afford one. For more information about Ryan and his project, please visit ryanofman.wordpress.com. Before returning to my conversation with Rabbi Josh Weinberg, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, Laura Fish, who is the Chief Strategy and Planning Officer at Federation CJA who discusses with me her many articles she's written as a result of her professional experiences, as well as the relationship between the Canadian and American Jewish communities. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. What became quite clear in the first six months after I got over learning all the acronyms for Jewish organizations, and I kept saying, JFNA, repeat that to me. Okay. And then Karen Hayasud, wait a second. So who goes to who and where? That took a long time, frankly. Once I was done with that, I really set about rebuilding the way we invest in our community, both by restructuring at the professional level and reframing the information we were bringing to our lay committee, and then changing the way we engage with our agencies from just sending them a letter saying you have X amount to spend this year, moving to a very well-developed funding agreement with clearly articulated deliverables and expectations and evaluation metrics. That said, Montreal is... 
unusual. Federation has retained a certain centrality that I don't really think you see in many other communities. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Laura Fish in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Josh. I have to credit Nat Hoffman for sharing with me that line of rolling up your sleeves. That's, that's hers. And her other line that I quote a lot, which is very important, is that know the truth about Israel. Right. Sit down and read. You get what comes into your Facebook feed, but also read lots of news, talk to people, talk to Israelis, because to quote Anath, love is what remains after you know the truth. And to be able to continue to love and to appreciate and to support and to work to change and to you know, advocate and be an activist, you have to know the truth and you have to be able to say, okay, I'm involved. This is who I am. I can't stay away. So for those who work in the Jewish community, obviously we deal with you know, lay leaders and professionals, and you have this rabbinic council, right? You have professionals mm-hmm. who are in the field mm-hmm. leading congregations of people with sure. varied ideas. You have a lot of organizations on the left who are very loud, a lot of organizations on the right that are just as loud, if not sometimes louder. The solution, as I've you know already alluded to, is not to engage, right? Not to talk about it, not to have these discussions. We don't want to rock any boats one way or another. Don't take a position, right? I can't assume that that's what you talk about in your rabbinic council. And I can't assume that that's the advice that you would give people working in the Jewish community. So regardless of people's kind of personal attachment or disattachment, I wholeheartedly believe in everything that you're saying as to the purpose of Artsa and why it's existing and what it's pushing toward is an Israel that reflects my Judaism, right? That reflects the love and the compassion and the kindness that I personally try to embody as a Jewish person, right? To see that reflected wholeheartedly in my country and a Jewish state. So what's some advice, some tools, some ways that maybe people can talk about these things or be more comfortable and not shy away from these conversations, but to be able to engage in them with our lay leaders, with our constituents, even if maybe our personal views are different? First of all, All right, the whole world is a narrow bridge and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to do it. Yeah, it's okay to argue and it's okay to disagree. So don't be afraid to do that. And then once you're not afraid, be smart about how you approach the subjects. Set ground rules. Talk in the first person. Start out telling stories and don't just ease into the big questions of how do you feel about settlements? Or how do you feel about the government policy? Or how do you feel about mm. you know, metal detectors on the Temple Mount, for instance, is the latest uh, issue of, of this week. Ease into it. And keep in mind that not every educator or rabbi or youth group advisor has to be an expert in everything Israel. No, that's okay. One, what I would recommend, though, is to know where to get good resources, to not be afraid to read. You have to read, and you have to read the news, you know, and you have to read the latest books, and you have to keep yourself updated. What I'm hoping is that you know, if an educator or a youth group advisor from a small town congregation somewhere in the United States is to be good at facilitating and to know your audience, to know how much you can discuss, to know the different personalities and who you need to match with who. And then it can help you come in and get facts and information and background and knowledge. So the first thing is, I want you to be the facilitator. You don't have to be the expert. Mm -hmm. There are enough experts out there. Technology is so great today. You can have access to so many different people. That's a big thing. Second thing, 
And this is my advice to anyone looking to work in the Jewish world at all, regardless of Israel or environment or social services or whatever, learn the Hebrew language. Mm-hmm. This is the language of our people, and it is a carrier of culture. It is the key that will unlock the Jewish bookshelf and Jewish tradition. That, I think, more than anything else, will be the key to bringing these communities closer from North America, from around the world, and Israel. I can't underestimate and I can't emphasize enough the importance of the Hebrew language in becoming a Jewish professional. You just have to learn it. And I've met too many people who, they want to speak Hebrew, but they don't want to learn Hebrew. It's like, I want to be able to play piano, but I don't want to practice. And you know what? The great unifying experience of Hebrew school, where we all sort of suffered equally, that's not cutting it. And I see a lot of congregations already moving to a different model of how can we be conversational? How can we bring in different kinds of learning that will actually stick and not just work on decoding or memory or rote ritual practice for bar and bat mitzvah? And I think one one of the I completely agree. And I think one of the things I like about your work is this focus on educational resources, because I feel like in the Jewish community growing up, Israel related stuff and obviously appropriate stuff for appropriate ages, but Israeli dancing, food, you know, a mock airplane ride, you know, Israel Day Mm -hmm. festivities, a mock army training, right? There's kind of these cultural elements that <laughs> did you win yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's how i grew up right learning it and about israel and the cultural references that you talk about the things that we and israelis they will only assume want more of in their country as far as the happy pretty light positive stuff that is there but obviously is mucked up with a lot of other stuff i haven't looked through your education resources but i can only assume they help people and educators and teens get to a place away from the falafel stand and into actual conversation with the things that maybe they see on the news or things that their parents talk about or the eventual trip to college, which I dread for my unborn children because kind of the Mm -hmm. culture in some campuses. And then they start thinking for themselves. And if all we've taught them is how to do an Israeli dance or have gone on birthright and rode a camel, right? If those are the experiences we're giving them growing up, it's not going to lead to a more positive country in Israel. Yeah, we have to move on beyond camels and kibbutzim and, you know, falafel and don't knock Israeli dancing because... I love Israeli dancing. uh, (laughs) I would never. Love some good rikudayam, but I'm not sure that's in the canon of what I want a person to know as they become an adult. And I'll say something else about the college campuses is that if we start the fight and we start pouring in resources into college campuses, I think it's a bit too late. I'm a big believer in high school experiences, whether it's the EIE program, you know, Hell or High, or others in other movements, or summer teen tours. I think 16 years old is a critical age. And I think that we need to treat them more like adults. Um, mm-hmm. So for instance, if a student arrives at college campus and has not heard the word Palestinian, we've done them a tremendous disservice. Right. That does not help them. And it's not about giving them talking points or passing period pointers that can help win a quick argument and do what we call Hasbara or PR advocacy, propaganda, if you will. I think people see right through that. No, let's be real. 
Let's be afraid to say where we think Israel has made mistakes. Let's not be afraid to say that. And uh, let's be real and let's examine the stories. Yes, this is a terrible tragedy. We're against that. We can stand up against the occupation. We can still be in favor, obviously, and we can lend our support for a vibrant Israel and to say that Israel has a right to defend ourselves. Just like we can come out against the horrific, horrific and tragic murder of the Solomon family at their Shabbat table on a Friday night in a settlement, even though we probably disagree ideologically with many who live in their community. First of all, you have to have enough knowledge to be able to stand up and defend yourself. And you have to say that some of the moral equivalencies are not always the same. Yes, you can be a Zionist and advocate for Israel and also say that Black Lives Matter and also say that members of the LGBTQ community should be able to adopt children and have rights and women's reproductive rights and go on and on down the list. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, and not an either or. And so I hear so many conversations take place, especially around college campuses, but not only around college campuses, around the left-wing activist world in D.C., in New York, L.A., you know, all over the place. I've had this myself, even from people in our movement. They say, oh, I I was afraid to talk to you about Israel because you're a Zionist. And I was afraid that you were going to be... Yeah, exactly, exactly. It comes back to me. I said, well, wait a second. I'm a Zionist because I believe in Tikkun Olam and Black Lives Matter in Israel also, where we have a big (laughs) issue of African asylum seekers that we need to take care of. And that's, you know, intrinsic in what it means to be Jewish and what our texts, you know, teach us. So I think those things are very important to stand up and clearly delineate where you stand, what you agree with, and what you don't. Be able to develop the skills in having those civil arguments or debates and discussions. Mm-hmm. And it's important for Jewish professionals too, as I mentioned earlier, that if you've devoted your life to this community, like it or not, it's you know quite intertwined with that of the state of Israel. So I'd love for you to talk a little 100%. bit about... Yeah, a little bit about your partners in Israel, because the other sense is like, well, it's their country. <laughs> you know, if it's messed mm-hmm, up, mm-hmm. they want to, you know, then they need to fix it, which at this point in our political world as Americans, rethinking kind of that thought process of this is your country and it's broken. And if you want it fixed, you fix it. Because I feel like our country is a little bit broken, right? And it's up to us to fix it. Right. I'd love to just hear, I mean, you talked a little bit in, you know, your experience as a rabbinic student and the people you are meeting and then saying to you, why don't we have spirituality in our Judaism? I'd love to hear a little bit about those on the ground, if you will, and your relationship with them. Sure. We work very closely with the Israel Movement for Reform and Progressive Judaism, the IMPJ, and their legal advocacy wing, the Israel Religious Action Center, or IRAC. And they are working day in and day out to create programs and to build congregations. So we're nearing almost 50 congregations around the state or around Israel. And some are big congregations with their own building. And some are small congregations with a handful of people coming together for Kabbalat Shabbat. And they're new and they're sort of exploring this notion. So that's who we work with very closely in Israel, in addition to the, our other partners in the national institutions and in sort of the uh, you know, political realm. But I think to the question of you know, whether American Jews or Americans, let's say, should be involved in Israel because we don't live there, is a question that is largely anachronistic and you know, comes from this notion of shlilat gola or the negation, almost rejection of the diaspora, whereby many Israelis would say, well, if you don't live here and if you don't serve in the army and you don't pay taxes, you don't vote in the elections, you can't have a voice here. Now, 
I happen to pay taxes and serve in the army and vote in Israel. So, but I'm not the case that they're talking about. I think they're talking about the vast majority. Talk about me. That's right. (laughs) Sure. Yes. Let's take you for instance. Yeah. My blunt and nasty answer I'll say to Israelis is to say, fine, but you can't have it both ways. You can't both want our support and want organizations like J Street and, and APAC to exist that influence American foreign policy and secure, you know, memorandum of understanding for $38 billion over 10 years and want us to butt our heads out when you don't like what we have to say. But you also can't, can't call it, it both ways. You also can't call it a Jewish state without all Jews feeling some sort of responsibility or connection to it, right? You are called the thing that we say, I am a Jew, right? And you are a Jewish state, right? I don't know if you know this, but in the days and weeks leading up to the establishment of the state, it wasn't clear what the name of the country was going to be. There were a few different options. And if you can imagine a Jewish state, there was a committee formed. Uh, and I they, believe you know, it. <laughs> a few task forces as well, I'm sure. Some, some task forces, <laughs> some commissions, yes. And they had to decide what the name was going to be. And one of the names suggested was Yehuda or Judea. And they said, well, that wouldn't work out so well, first of all, because it encompasses the larger area than was the biblical boundaries of Yehuda, the tribe of Judah that, that mm-hmm. settled there. And the question is, what would we call the citizens of the state of Yehuda? They would be called Yehudim. And so, first of all, it's a problem because not all of the citizens of Israel are Jews. And not all the Jews of the world are citizens of Israel. So they said, okay, let's not call it that. However, in the rabbinic period, the word Yisrael just meant Jew. So like if you have an aliyah to the Torah, the traditional progression is for a Kohen first, and then a Levi second, and then a Yisrael to be third. A Yisrael just meant anyone from the community. So the state of Israel could be the state for Yisrael, for Klal Yisrael, for the entirety of the Jewish people. And that's certainly what we would hope for. Now, here's a question. Should there or should there not be an absentee ballot in Israel like there is in the United States? Mm -hmm. There isn't at the moment. So if you're an Israeli living abroad, you cannot vote in the elections unless you return back. That's right. Different than the United States. United States, this is actually the first election I voted in in 20 years. Actually, I voted in person. The rest, I voted absentee. And so... It was a new experience, and I voted in the past three elections in Israel. And so that's a big question mm-hmm. that Israel is asking itself, and what should be the involvement of Jews around the world in Israel? There's a financial piece, there's an activism piece, there's a cultural piece, there's a political piece. And so I think it's only been seven decades. Right. You know, it's, it's only been 69 years so far. Young. It is young, and we're still trying to figure out that relationship. But what we do know is that we need each other very much. And there's a huge exchange. I mean, first of all, I think that what we're seeing, you know, what we have this tradition of sending shlichim, sending emissaries from Israel, whether they work at summer camps or are in communities or they're to promote aliyah or they're political emissaries or diplomatic emissaries. It's a tradition. I think it's time to start going both ways that we need to be sending people not just as the Zionist pioneers used to say, not just to build, but to be built by Israel as well, to be able to give and to lend and to support and to create something new and diverse in Israel. I think it really does have to go both ways. And I think that you know the Israelis that I meet and work with are excited for that exchange. 
the days of resentment for those who live abroad, I think, are waning. And we're seeing just a new era of Israeli, a reimagining, a revisioning of, of what it means to be Zionist in the 21st century. Obviously, my hope would be that most North American Jews do spend significant time in Israel. And by that, I mean, you know, a semester or a year. Or if all American Jews took a year between high school and college or right after college and spent either volunteering or studying or participating in some way in Israeli life and society, that would be a tremendous game changer for the American Jewish scene and also for the Israeli Jewish scene. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my jobs in the army was to speak to soldiers going on birthright buses. <laughs> um, it, was, it, was a, it was a great it was a great gig oh, and uh, <laughs> that's right yeah but what they weren't expecting i think is to be totally moved and taken by the experience mm-hmm. they saw israel through the eyes of the diaspora participants and often they saw an israel that they had never seen before right and they had been exposed to a different kind of judaism and so they kind of had this awakening to say, wow, this is a big experience. And it was you know, a tremendous opportunity to do that kind of mifgash experience, that encounter. And it has to be about more than just tell me about your identity or let's eat hummus together. It has to be about something real, which is why I like volunteer projects where people come together. The Jewish agency runs something called Project Tame, And there are a few other such projects that exist. And I'm hoping to be able to do more together. One of the big pieces that we are working in now is something called Domim Alike. It's headed by our friends and the staff of the IMPJ, and it's a program funded by the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs in Israel. Just think about that for a second. There's a country that dedicates a serial portfolio to the diaspora affairs. It's really incredible. And they funded this program called Domim Alike, where we match up Jewish communities around the world, not necessarily Israel and diaspora, but also some diaspora to diaspora communities as well, because we want to champion the concept of peoplehood and Klai Israel, and that, that we're all together in this. And what I hear from American Jews all the time is that in addition to wanting a relationship with Israel for whatever that means to them, think, you know, God, Torah, Israel, they also very much want to have a relationship with Israelis. And they want to understand who Israelis are and what is their experience, and what is at the core of their identity. And I think one of the great tragedies is that, you know, almost seven decades later, we still don't really understand each other. Right. Yeah, and we don't understand what it means to be a Jew in the diaspora or a Jew in Israel. So what's in the future? Because it sounds like, from what you're telling me, it's this younger generation that's the generation of birthright. It's the generation of mixing more with the American Jewish community and the American Jewish community mixing more with the Israeli community. Is it a matter of time for a generational shift? Is it obviously continuing the political activism that all sides, you know, contribute, however that Mm -hmm. looks, staying engaged in whatever that is meaningful to you? What do you see in the next 20 years? Well, I'm having a lot of trouble making predictions, especially about the future. (laughs) And, uh, you know, lo anochi, I'm not a, a prophet. And the Talmud even teaches us that after the destruction of the temple, prophecy was given to fools and to children. So I can't necessarily tell you what's going to be in the future, but I can tell you what I lose sleep about. And it basically comes down to two potentially polarizing oppositional 
sentiments that we find in Jewish tradition. One is the notion of that the poor of your community should come first, versus the notion of kol Yisrael arivim zelaze, that all of Israel or all the Jewish people are responsible for one another. So, for instance, some of you who have not been hiding under a rock for the past six to nine months without any internet or any coverage or any TVs, have noticed that there's been a significant shift in the political scene in the United States of America. I'll let you decide whether that's good or bad. Right. You know, you can make up your own mind. But a lot of people have said, you know, gosh, I can't even think about Israel right now because there's an immigration ban or there is a severe attack against healthcare policy in the United States. Mm -hmm. And as Jews, we need to stand up for that because that is at the core of what it means to be Jewish. And good for them. They're right. That is absolutely important. But, <laughs> but don't forget that don't forget that there is a part of the Jewish community that is living in Israel and dealing with its own issues. And that we want you to be a part of that and involved in that as well. And it comes down to me to the fundamental balance between being part of a particular story, you know, particularism versus only focusing on the universalism. I was speaking with a young teen leader a few weeks ago who's really incredible, but she said something that stuck with me that I'm, I'm still thinking about very much, and that is when she talked about being a Reformed Jew, she said that her identity was much more Reformed than it was Jewish. I, I don't blame her. Yeah, It's not her fault, and it's not necessarily a bad thing either. However, remember what Golda Meir said to Henry Kissinger when he said, she should not expect him to do the bidding of the Jewish people because he's an American Jew. And she said, Henry, in Hebrew, we read right to left. You know, that means that, you know, you're a Jew first and then an American second. And most people don't even think about those things as being at all a question. But I want us to think about, okay, so what are we doing for the Jewish people today? And how are we using our Jewish values to improve society and to help heal the aches and pains and some of the real issues and troubles that we're experiencing today. And if we look at them with a broader lens, they're some of the same issues. Israel is going to be a Jewish state for a lot longer than Trump is going to be our president. And well, so, without being political, you know, it, like, I hope that that's true. That. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure, matter of fact. So when you talk about somebody saying this, you know, taking up my time and my effort, you know, even after things move forward, you know, this, the issues will still be there. Yeah, issue, right. This this state that bears your name, that bears your identity, God willing, will still be there. But I would say, you know, also now is the time that we need people. You know, we need you, and we want you to be involved. We want you to join us as we work to build the Jewish and democratic state. It is a Jewish and democratic state, but we work to help it be more tolerant, more pluralistic, and to support the growing reform movement. Yeah. Yeah. And the first step in that, right, especially for Jewish professionals, is being educated and knowing what to say and how to say it and how to talk about Israel and forming an educated opinion on your relationship with it. So the more you can understand what your relationship is with Israel, the more you can talk about these harder issues with people that might disagree with you. Yeah, 100%. I've never found a bad argument against reading and expanding right. your, your knowledge and horizons and also finding people to discuss these things with. 
look, that's why we're people that place such a high value on community. If you're all alone in the middle of nowhere, that's a challenge. That can be really hard. So come together and talk and debate and ask questions. And of course, challenge. Challenge us and learn the Hebrew language. (laughs) That's advice number one. That's a big one. Fantastic. Well, I want to bring it back to you a little bit. You have a family, you have this full-time job. Where do you live? We live in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. All right. So you do live in New York. (laughs) You work in the city. Whether you keep it balanced or not, I guess shouldn't be the question I'm asking anymore. But how do you get everything done that has to get done? I do not envy you in the career you have chosen. (laughs) It is a a long fight, but a very worthy one. I'm one of the fortunate people who wakes up in the morning and says that I get to make a living at what I would be doing anyway. The question that people ask, are you here for business or pleasure? The answer is yes. We have a six and a half year old, four year old and a two year old. And my wife is doing a PhD. So we're busy and evenings are hard. And especially when I travel a lot and I speak a lot at different congregations and we Jews tend to uh, have lots of conferences. We love love conferences. Yeah. (laughs) My wife once asked me, why do you have to go again on Shabbat? And I said, well, you know, the Jews aren't necessarily coming together on like a Tuesday morning. That's when people meet. And it's very hard. And the only advice I can give is, you know, be very strategic about when you have to be out of the house. And when you're home, be home. And I'm guilty as anyone of being too glued to my phone and, you know, always checking email. You know, someone told me, who's a mentor, just celebrated his 91st birthday. He said to me, you know, in the end of the day, when I reflect back in my life, I never said, gosh, I wish I could have been on one more conference call. (laughs) Uh, Or, you know, God, I wish I could have sent a few more emails. No, he said, I wish I could have spent more time with my kids and been around more. And, you know, we try to do that between you know, being dedicated to our positions and taking them seriously. And we have a staff and the lay leaders and a lot of demands. There's always the case of the rabbi who missed his own bedtime, but he gave a great sermon on family relations and how to spend more time. And I don't think that we have to, you know, sacrifice our personal lives for the Jewish community. I think we have to lead by example, actually. I was fortunate to grow up in a household where my dad is a rabbi. His joke was that he was flexible in his job and he could choose which hundred hours a week he would work. <laughs> um, and look, there's always the funeral or a meeting right. or you know, different, you know, Shabbat or Hagim or, or whatever. But he also made time to always be at our games and our practice on our shows and so on and so forth. So that's really important. And look, I'm spending my summer vacation at two different summer camps where I serve on faculty and my family's able to come with me and be together there. So, okay, we're not going to the Bahamas. We're going to upstate New York and, you know, the middle of Wisconsin. Both beautiful places. (laughs) They're both beautiful, amazing. And I wouldn't trade those things for anything right now because it's a way to be influential, hopefully, and learn a lot and spend time with the family as well. I'm lucky I'm able to do that. Clearly, you have many years of hard work ahead of you, but clearly there is a passion, a light there that I'm excited to see what you're able to accomplish. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to retiring in a few years. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. Josh is deeply passionate about his role as a bridge builder between the Jewish community in Israel and in North America. What a great example of following your passion and loving what you do. Josh gave us a lot of things to contemplate when it comes to our personal relationship with Israel. 
As professionals, it is our responsibility to understand our individual and organizational view of Israel's place, be able to articulate that position, and understand the ramifications. Because Israel as a place, as an identity, as a history, is deeply Jewish, regardless of the politics of the day. So take back the word Zionist, go learn Hebrew, sign up for an Israeli newspaper, or just listen to interesting people like Josh. The more we are able to have conversations about the way we connect with Israel, the better our community will be equipped to handle dissonance in the future. I truly appreciate Josh for coming on the program, helping us understand the work of Artsa and his passion for Israel. We want to thank our newest podcast partner, Ryan Ofman, with his project SAT Math Workbook. For more information about Ryan's project and how you can help, visit ryanofman.wordpress.com. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and you can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations, and more on our website, it's who you know, the podcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at it's who you know, the podcast.com or on the it's who you know, Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's who you know, the podcast. 